The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 21, the 21st verse in the 5th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. But those who were here last Sunday morning will remember that we indicated that the older and better manuscripts are all agreed in saying that it should read, uh, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ, in the fear of Christ. Now, we come back once more to consideration of this statement, because, as I was indicating last Sunday morning, it is such a vital one and important one especially in the understanding of that which is to follow. I argued, you remember, that this statement here is at one and the same time a continuation of what the Apostle has already been saying and a kind of general introduction to what he is going to say. And it is important that we should bear both those things in mind. He's addressing people who are filled with the Spirit, And one of the characteristics of people who are filled with the Spirit is that they uh, submit themselves one to another. Unlike the pagans, those who belong to the world, and those who are filled with wine wherein is excess, they're not uh, out to show themselves or to display themselves or to assert their own rights. The Spirit always has the effect of making people meek and ready to surrender and to abase themselves for the sake of others. Now, we looked at all that, both uh, negatively and positively. And uh, the two elements must always be borne in mind. They are not to be like those Gentiles filled with wine wherein is excess. They mustn't do the things they do. But on the contrary, they must be as people who are thus filled with the Spirit. And we've already seen uh, some of the characteristics of such people. He's been telling us that they speak uh, to one another in psalms and hymns and uh, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in their hearts to the Lord. And we worked that out. The point that he emphasizes is that they're all to do it together. That even in their singing, they're to do it together. They're not to show their voices not to show what wonderful voices they've got, not to hold out at the end of a line in order that their voice may be heard, not to call attention to themselves, but they're to make melody, which means that they must all be doing it together, controlling themselves if they have powerful voices so that they all may sing at the same time and in the same way and make melody thus together in their hearts to the Lord giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The picture you see he has in his mind there is that of a choir, as I said in working it out, not a series of brilliant soloists, but a choir, a blending, a working together, a harmony, so that there is nothing which is clashing or irritating, nothing which is of the flesh, but it is done always in the spirit. Well, now he's continuing with all that. And you see, it's the same idea, submitting yourselves one to another. Not a man taking the leadership upon himself, but uh, 
Everybody is submitting in order that they may work harmoniously together. The other picture is, as I was showing, of course, that of the body. And the whole secret of the working of the body is that every part is uh, subservient uh, thus uh, to every other part. If any one part of the body is uh, overactive at the expense of the others, well, that's disease. And it produces a kind of monstrosity. So the apostle, you see, is really continuing with what he has already been saying. But at the same time, he is also introducing uh, what is about to follow. In other words, he doesn't merely leave it at saying, submitting yourselves one to another. There is this further addition to which I'm calling attention this morning. It is in the fear of Christ. Now, we must look at uh, this addition, because uh, here we are told exactly how and why we are to submit ourselves one to the other. This last phrase of the apostles provides us, in other words, with the motives for submitting ourselves one to the other. Let, let us look at it like this. I divide it in the following way. Let us see, first of all, why we are submit to submit ourselves one to another. The reasons for doing so. And his answer is, in the fear of Christ. Now, this, this is not just a, a casual addition that he makes. It isn't just a, a phrase to round off the injunction. It isn't something that he just wrote without thinking about it, or accidentally. Uh, as uh, people are sometimes uh, tempted to do, uh, those uh, who would have us know their spirituality, they intersperse uh, their conversation with certain cliches and phrases. They keep on saying, praise the Lord, almost every other sentence. Now, that isn't the way in which the apostle added this phrase, in the fear of Christ. It isn't done thoughtlessly and glibly and superficially like that. It is obviously done because it is an essential part of his teaching. And I can prove that to you quite easily. Here you see he is laying down his general principle. We are to live a life which is characterized by this, that we submit ourselves one to another. Then, as we remember, he takes this up in three particular instances. Wives and husbands, children and parents, servants and masters. But what is so interesting to observe is this, that in each of the three instances, as here in the general statement of the principle, he is very careful to make this addition. Now look at it. Here it is, first of all, in the general principle. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Now then, first instance, the wives, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. He doesn't stop at saying, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. He adds, as unto the Lord. Then look at the second instance, the children. First verse of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Still the same addition. He doesn't just say, children, obey your parents, for this is right. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Still the same addition. And then in the third instance, uh, with the master's 
And with the servants and the masters, we've got the same thing. Listen to him in verses 5 and following. Servants, obey, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall, shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Very well, you see, this is clearly a controlling principle. And it is idle for us to go on to consider the duties of wives towards their husbands or children to parents or servants to masters unless we are clear about this overriding principle of the way in which we do it, the reason why we must do it. What then exactly does this mean? Well, we can put it first of all in a general form like this. This is the motive which is to govern the whole of Christian living. Everything that the Christian does is to be done in the fear of Christ. He's proving that, you see, by repeating it so constantly in these individual instances. Now, here is something which we ignore at our peril. It is in the fear of Christ. Uh, what does it mean exactly? Well, let me put it negatively first. We are to do this, we are to submit ourselves one to another and do all the things that come out of it, not because this is a good thing in and of itself, and because not to do so is bad. I mean this, of course, that there are men in the world who do this kind of thing because they believe it's a right thing to do. But that doesn't make them Christian. The thing that marks off the Christian from the man who is not a Christian is not merely that he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation and trusts him and his atoning work. Now, in addition to that, the life of the Christian is governed altogether by this person. Jesus Christ is Lord. And you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't believe in him as Savior only. You believe in him as Lord. If you have any belief in him whatsoever, you believe in the whole Christ. And therefore he becomes the Lord of your life. And the Christian doesn't merely do things because they're good and right. And because it's wrong to do certain other things. Anybody can do that. The differentiating mark of the Christian is this one. That he does everything as unto the Lord in the fear of Christ because Christ is his Lord. This, of course, is something that revolutionizes thought. Let me put it, therefore, in the form of another, another negative. Submitting yourselves one to another. Quite so. Here, says somebody, is a principle that I'm in, in entire agreement with. I have no use for your talk about the blood of Christ and atonement and so on, but when you say that we should all submit yourselves one to another. Now, that's something I agree with. That's what I call the egalitarian state. It's the doing away with all classes and divisions and distinctions. We all become one. 
all men are equal, submitting yourselves one to another. But that isn't what the apostle says. We are not to submit ourselves one to another because of some political or social or philosophical teaching which we may hold. There are people who hold that teaching, that egalitarian philosophy, that everybody is to be reduced to the same common level. Doesn't matter what they are nor who they are. All are brought to that level. That isn't what the apostle says at all. Submitting yourselves one to another. Why? Well, not because it's your political or social theory, but in the fear of Christ. Altogether different. Now, I'm not expressing my opinion on political and social and philosophical theories. All I'm concerned to emphasize this morning is this, that the Christian motive for doing these things is altogether different from that which applies in the case of the non-Christian. And therefore, to confuse Christian teaching or to reduce Christian teaching to political theory the socialism or whatever else it may be, is a travesty of the gospel. Now, I'm not concerned, I say, about the politics, but I am concerned about showing that the Christian position is always this, in the fear of Christ. And though by act of parliament you reduce all men to a common denominator, you don't make them Christians thereby. If it isn't for this reason, it is of no value at all. Or let me give you another negative. We are not to submit ourselves one to another simply because it is the thing to do in certain circles and under certain conditions. You know there are social conventions that do this, aren't there? You just stand back and make way, submitting yourselves one to another. That isn't what the apostle is talking about. He doesn't say that you put on a sort of social uniform or affect the manners of a certain class or a certain group that you give the impression that you're submitting yourselves, whereas, of course, the whole time in your heart you're doing the exact opposite, and that this apparent submission is a sign of your real superiority, that you're prepared to do that and you're proud of it. This isn't etiquette. No, no. The world uh, appears very wonderful, doesn't it? You look on and, oh, you see a man standing back and uh, bowing. But the question is, what about his heart and why is he doing it? Is he doing it in the fear of Christ? Social conventions are not in the mind of the apostle at all because they're always superficial, they're unreal. The Christian has a profound and a deep motive and it is the fear of Christ. This is the thing that governs him, this is the thing that always rules him. And then uh, let me give you one other negative. I wonder whether this will shock you. We are to submit ourselves one to the other and in the matter of wives and husbands and children and parents and servants and masters, not even for the sake of keeping the law, even the law of God. That is not the Christian's primary motive. The motive of the Christian is always in the fear of Christ. Some of the things he's told to do, of course, have already been stated in the law. Take children, for instance. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Yes, the commandment said it. And the Christian is to do this thing which is indicated in the commandment. Yes, but he's got 
another reason and a new reason for doing it. The Jew is meant to keep the commandment. The Christian does it in the Lord, in the fear of Christ. He's not merely concerned about keeping the law. He has this higher motive. It is in the fear of Christ. Now then, this is the differentiating mark of the Christian always. The Christian doesn't think of himself in terms of the law even any longer. He always thinks of himself in this relationship, not as being without law, but as being under law to Christ, in the fear of Christ, in this personal relationship to his Lord and Savior. The apostle therefore goes on repeating this in order to impress that upon us. And of course it is essential for this reason. That it is only as we are governed by this motive that we shall be able to do this. And of course a man who is filled with the Spirit is a man who is filled with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit points to him. The Spirit glorifies him. The Spirit always leads to him. And so the man filled with the Spirit will ever be looking at him. And this is his one grand motive in the fear of Christ. And having this, he is enabled uh, to do uh, these various things. So I'll sum it up by putting it in this form. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is this. The Christian always knows why he does a thing. He always knows what he is doing. You see, we've already been reminded that he's not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We saw that in verse 17. That's the difference. The other man doesn't know why he, why he does things. He conforms to pattern. He imitates others. He watches what they do and he does them. He doesn't know why. He hasn't really got the philosophy of the thing. He just does it. He's always conformed. But here's a man who thinks and who reasons. He's got wisdom. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the reason always is in the fear of Christ. What does this mean? How does it work out? What are his particular reasons and motives? Well, the first one is obviously this one. The Christian submits himself to others and does these other things because this is something that has been plainly and clearly taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, at the beginning last Sunday morning, I read to you two passages out of the Gospels, which make this perfectly plain and clear. There was one in the 20th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, which illustrates and illumines this whole subject once and forever. Matthew 20, beginning at verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on my right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of, etc.? And then he goes on and makes this vital statement. The ten, of course, when they heard this, were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Why? Well, because they wanted to be in that supreme position themselves. They were annoyed with the brothers because they'd got it in first, as it were. And we got all so clear about these deficiencies in others, so they were filled with indignation. But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and that they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. 
but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now there, you see, he has given explicit teaching on this very subject. So the Christian need be in no doubt or hesitation. It is one of the clearest commandments and pieces of teaching ever given by our blessed Lord. Well, then there's that other extraordinary and marvelous illustration of it in John 13. Here is our Lord on the very eve of his death. We are told that having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And then this remarkable thing happened. Verse 12, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, You remember what had happened, don't you? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, knowing that, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And they couldn't understand it. Peter was objecting to this, and our Lord had to rebuke him and teach him. So, after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Do you understand what I've been doing? Do you see its meaning? Do you see its significance? You call me Master and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. There was never plainer teaching than this. There's no need to argue about this. There's no need to be in any difficulty or in any doubt or darkness with respect to it. Our Lord, once and forever in that act of washing the disciples' feet, has placed it before us. It's in the category, you see, of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. He has taken an action. He's done something. And there the picture should ever be before us. That's why we submit ourselves one to another, because he's taught us to do so. Listen to him saying again, By this he says, Shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. That's how they're going to know it. And indeed he says it again in the great high priestly prayer, where he prays that they all may be one, as he and the Father are one, that all men may know that they are his disciples and that the Father has sent him. So our first great reason for paying great heed to this is that our Lord has gone out of his way to teach it. Here he is the Lord of glory, but he humbled himself. 
Lord and Master, yet he submits himself. He's not like the princes of the world. No, no, he's in a different category. We must get rid of all human thinking. He is the Son of God who has come down to be our minister. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, there's the first reason, but listen to a second. The second is, of course, that uh, we are to do these things, therefore, in order to show our gratitude to him. If we really believe what we claim to believe as Christians, our supreme desire in life should be to show our gratitude to him. Do we really believe that he is the Son of God? That he came down from heaven to earth in order to save us? Not only by living his perfect life, but especially by going deliberately to the cross, taking our sins upon him, bearing our sins and their punishment. He gave his life, he died, that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled unto God. Now, I, I, the argument is this, if we really believe that, our supreme desire should be to please him, to show our gratitude to him. He's done that for us. What does he want us to do? Well, he wants us to keep his commandments. And he wants us to keep his commandments in order that his name might be magnified and glorified amongst other people. You see, there again, in the great high priestly prayer, he put it like this. He, praying to the Father, says, I have glorified thy name in the earth, and then I am glorified in them. This is the thing that should always govern all our practice. That the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified in the world, in us, through us. This isn't a matter of argument. It isn't a matter of whether we like it or not. He has said it, and it is obviously true. Men and women outside are judging the Lord Jesus Christ and forming their assessments of him by what they see in us. And, of course, if they look at us and see a conduct and a behavior which is identical with that in the world, every man striving for superiority, every man trying to show himself and to call attention to himself, well, they say this is the world. That's what the world does. The world doesn't work in harmony. There are always clashes. These individualists were always asserting themselves that they may call attention to themselves. That's how the world sings. That's how it does everything. And if they see that in us, how can they possibly believe in and worship the Lord Jesus Christ? His claim is not only that he's died for us, but that he gives us new life, that he creates us anew, that he regenerates us that we are essentially different, that we are filled with the spirit that was in, in him. I am glorified in them. So the Christian is a man who's always remembering this. He doesn't ask, what do I want to do? What would I like to do? What pleases me? No, no. He has lost himself in his love for Christ, his gratitude to him. His desire is, I say, to show his gratitude. He's got a zeal for the name of the Lord. He wants others to believe in him. Well, now, the way to do that, of course, is primarily to live. It's no use talking to people if you deny it in your practice. It's no use preaching if I deny it in my life. People look at us and what we are and what we do. Well, therefore, he says, submit yourselves one to the other in the fear of Christ. 
This is your governing and overruling motive. But let me take it a step higher. That is our desire to please him and to show our love to him. You notice he uses the word fear. In the fear of Christ. And this means this, amongst other things. A fear of disappointing him. A fear of grieving him. The scripture tells us that Christ says, Behold me and the children that thou hast given me. We are his possession. We are his people. His name is upon us. We are his representatives. We are the people whom he has bought and whom he has purchased. And the relationship is one, I say, of love. So that the Christian is a man who is governed by thoughts of that. He is looking down upon us. His reputation, as it were, is in our hands. I am glorified in them. He says, I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. The world doesn't see him, it sees us. And we are the light, the only light that it's got. And the Christian is a man who lives and walks and does all he does in the light of that. Are we disappointing him? That's how love thinks, isn't it? That is the kind of fear that comes into the realm of love. It's altogether higher than law. This is the fear of hurting or of grieving or of disappointing someone who loves you and who's got faith in you, who trusts you, who admires you, who's fond of you, who's done so much for you. And this is the marvelous thing about it. That's why love is the greatest power and the greatest motive force in the whole world. A man is unable to do things for love which he cannot do by his own willpower or anything else. Love is the grandest and the greatest motive. And it partly operates, you see, in that way. Is there anything more terrible than to think that we are disappointing the one who so loved us that he gave himself for us? That we should grieve him that we should be unworthy of him. Parents, you know this feeling about your children. Children should have the same feeling about their parents. This is the way the Christian lives. It isn't, I say, putting on a uniform. It isn't some political social theory. No, no. It's his love to us and our relationship to him and our fear, our dread, lest in any way we should grieve him or disappoint him. But I've got to take it even a step beyond that. There is a fear that, we, that should govern all we are and all we do, that should govern us in the matter of living and sanctification and in the matter of all our service. And it is something which is stated very frequently in the New Testament. I wonder how much are we influenced by this particular fear to which I am now going to call your attention. Listen to the apostle putting it to the Corinthians in the first epistle, chapter 3. Let me begin to read at verse 9, if you like. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry, you are God's building. 
according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another man buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple are ye? Now there's another fear, isn't it? The day shall declare it. Let me give you some other examples of this before we draw the doctrine out of it. Take again what he says at the end of chapter 9 in this first epistle to the Corinthians. Let me read from verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Why? Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Go on to the second epistle to the Corinthians, to chapter 5, and let's begin to read at verse 9. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Knowing the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ, the terror of the Lord. Go on to chapter 7 of that same second epistle to the Corinthians and read the first verse. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I'm not saying these things. It's the apostles that's saying them. Let us go on to Galatians chapter 6 and let me read there from the first verse. And this is what we find. The last chapter of Galatians. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, 
ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The same thing, you see. If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. And then you saw that great statement in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's how you're to work it out. That's why you're to submit yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then in writing to Timothy, you see, he says exactly the same thing. In his second epistle, in the second chapter, verse 19, there are people, he says, who are doing things that are wrong. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And, of course, I suppose the supreme example of it all is at the end of the twelfth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, in verses 28 and 29. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. What does all this mean? Well, this has got nothing to do with our justification. This has got nothing to do with our salvation. What is this? Ah, this is something different. This is a fear in the matter of rewards. Take the apostle in that first statement in 1 Corinthians 3. He says every man's work is going to be tried. And if a man has built upon the foundation wood and hay and stubble, it'll all be burned. There'll be nothing left. He himself shall suffer loss. Yet he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. It's a great mystery, this. I don't pretend to understand it. Nobody understands it. But the teaching seems to be quite clearly this. And it applies to all the other passages. Not one of those passages has reference to a man's salvation. But it does have reference to the reward that he's going to receive. It is possible for a man to be saved so as by fire, that he'll arrive in eternity with nothing at all, nothing that he's done which is of value, nothing, it's all gone. It's been destroyed by the fire of judgment. He himself is saved, yet so as by fire. And it's exactly the same in all these other passages. It doesn't mean that a man can fall from grace. Nobody does mean this. That a man who is saved can know the terror of the Lord. We must all stand before the judgment throne of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Very well, says the apostle, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Christian people, you and I are going to stand before him and look into his eyes and look into his face. 
Can you imagine what it will be like to feel this at that moment? Ah, yes, I believed that Christ died for me. I believed in the blood of Christ, and I traded on it. I did what I wanted. I didn't obey his commandments. I didn't do what he told me. I didn't perfect holiness in the fear of God. I didn't submit myself to others. I asserted myself. I was so much of the natural man still. Can you imagine what it'll be like just to look into his eyes? Well, I can give you some conception of it. You remember the Apostle Peter, our Lord, had warned him that he was going to deny him three times before the cock crew. And Peter protested. And then the time came when the servant maid challenged him and Peter, anxious to save his skin in his cowardice, denied his Lord. And you remember what we are told afterwards? The Lord looked upon Peter and he went out and he wept bitterly. The Lord didn't say a word to him. He just looked at him. He looked at him, that look of disappointment, that look of sorrow. Peter had let him down. Peter couldn't stand it. He'd have preferred words. He'd have preferred denunciation. He'd have preferred a thrashing. He'd have preferred to be thrown into jail. This was the thing that broke him and almost killed him. Jesus looked upon Peter. It was the look in his eye, knowing the terror of the Lord, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Wives and husbands, there's no need to argue. Children and parents, there's no argument or discussion. Servants and masters, no, no, he's told us what his will is. He's given us an example. We're without excuse. I say, therefore, let us submit ourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. It's the only motive. It is the sufficient motive. But thank God he gives us encouragement. He gives us an incentive. We've got this glorious encouragement, and what is it? It is his own example. Peter's, uh, Paul has already used it at the beginning of this fifth chapter. Listen, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. And then take that most glorious statement of it in Philippians 2. Listen, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Is it difficult to submit to others in the way we've indicated? Is it difficult to control ourselves and submerge ourselves and get rid of that egotism and so on? Is it difficult? Well, if you find it difficult as a Christian, here's your answer. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. If that doesn't do it, nothing can do it. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ that he might follow his steps who did no wrong, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. We are to live this life not because it's the thing to do, not because it's a uniform we now put on now that we are saved and converted, or because others are doing it, or any other. No, no. This is the only reason, the only motive. And thank God it's not only enough, it's more than enough. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.